from the Outreach Department at the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired in Austin, Texas. This is A Sense of Texas. Here is your host, Emily Coleman. Welcome to A Sense of Texas. I'm Emily Coleman. This is our last summer session episode before the school year begins in Texas and in several districts across the country. We've made a tradition out of using our summer episodes to step back and pull some interesting perspectives from our extensive archives. Today's episode is special for a few reasons. In mid-March, Texas Outreach were fresh off one of our biggest events, Texas Focus, a huge conference that was held in Houston this year. The last time many of us would see more than a couple dozen people sharing the same physical space at one time. We all know what happened next, or at least what our respective state's version of what happened next. Like a lot of schools, TSBVI quickly found itself with a student body that wouldn't return to campus after spring break. And Outreach realized it wouldn't be able to travel to other districts, something that's so critical to our work. Departments across the campus really stepped up to ensure that our comprehensive and short-term students continued receiving their educations. As many school systems had to do, we made the adjustments and took the technological jumps we needed in order to reach our students, regardless of distance or disability. And TSBBI Outreach really pulled off a feat. With five days notice, they inaugurated cleverly titled Coffee Hours, three weekly sessions providing professional development to people far and wide through the remainder of the school year. As attendance grew with each session, it was clear outreach was truly serving a population in isolation, hungry for assistance. And today we're proud to present a short version of one of the most popular coffee hours of the season, featuring one of our favorite people. Chris Tabb, formerly TSBVI Outreach's O&M specialist, has recently been bringing his encyclopedic knowledge, burning curiosity, and endless supply of corny jokes to the Maryland School for the Blind. He generously offered to host a coffee hour on the eve of his own safe, socially distanced wedding to share what he's learned about providing O&M instruction when pandemics keep you from being with your students. As always, Chris is a fountain of information, and we're pleased to share part of his presentation here with you now. I have to be very cautious here. Everyone across the, the world has different rules. There are some places or states where if you leave your house, other than to go for uh, grocery shopping to the pharmacy or those essential needs, you'll be fined. You'll receive a, you know, a, a misdemeanor charge and a thousand dollar ticket. So I'm, I'm not asking anyone to go and take a walk up and down the block unless you know that's permitted. But in somebody's backyard, if they have a backyard, there's lots of ways for you as an O&M specialist or TVI or dual to be able to encourage the use of sensory efficiency to go out and listen to the birds, listen to the traffic if you can hear it well enough. Um, talk about how does the grass feel different to the concrete or the sandbox. Lots of different ways that we can encourage the development and use of the, the concepts and the skills that will be used in other places when we are uh, released from our COVID restrictions. Certainly there's apps and devices. Uh, lots of different ways to do this. Uh, one of the things that sometimes we forget about is that uh, a student doesn't have to have their own phone. We might have young children who um, it's not appropriate for them to have a phone yet, or maybe it's just um, financially not possible. If the parent has a phone, they can download the app from APH called Nearby Explorer. Loading that on their phone every time they jump in the car, let's say to go to the grocery store, it will name the streets as 
the streets are being passed in the cars. So the student now has the opportunity to have incidental learning. They may not be able to see the street signs, they may not be able to see the landmarks, but they can hear the names of the streets in their community. They can anticipate the order of the streets as their parent drives closer and closer to home or farther and farther from home. They get to know their home area, their community auditorily. Um, and other resources for those that are low vision uh, is using things like Google Street View. Um, you can zoom in together. The APH Explorer, uh, Nearby Explorer does have the ability to do navigation. So you can do virtual navigation, which is basically an auditory version of Google Street Maps, where you can walk up and down a street. In terms of making maps, it's great if, if you have a Wheatley kit that you can send home, but if not, people can use dried beans or pasta or wiki sticks or cut out cardboard shapes, all sorts of different things. Um, you can also work through uh, just the regular telephone. If someone doesn't have a smartphone or a computer, asking the parent to bring out a cardboard box and to have the child crawl inside and outside the box so that you can work on in and out or over and under some of those basic concepts. Um, activities like doing the, the song, the hokey pokey or head, shoulders, knees and toes. Those are all concepts that we can be developing and encouraging and hopefully providing parents with some fun interaction time with their children while still learning. When we're thinking of early childhood, many of the services that we deliver are very similar, whether you're an OT, a PT, a TVI, an O&M, uh, AT, because of the, the functional development of that child. What's different is the way that we think about the outcome. In orientation mobility, we're thinking about purposeful movement. We're thinking about what that child is gonna do as they move along the lifespan. And a, a TVI is also thinking about that from a different perspective, as well as the OT and the PT and the AT, for our adults, when we think about what are critical skills, what are the things they're going to need, I'm going to use an example of listening skills. So when we think about how they listen in the world, what do they listen for, especially if these are uh, individuals who have adventitious visual impairment, they, they likely grew into their adult life using visual inputs and aren't as practiced at using their auditory, tactile, proprioceptive inputs. So to begin to help someone to understand how they can, quote unquote, feel a hill by paying attention to their joints with their proprioceptive sense is something most people haven't practiced. For someone to take a lawn chair and sit outside and listen to their environment and begin to dissect the sounds is the same skill they would use sitting at an intersection, dissecting the sounds of perpendicular and parallel traffic. You still have to listen in a, in a specific manner, ignoring some things and attending to others. It takes practice. So we can encourage people to begin to do that right in their own home or just outside their home. And then generalize that skill when we're able to move beyond that. Uh, if we think about using transportation network companies like Uber and Lyft or taxis or paratransit, we can develop all those uh, skills that are necessary for reserving the ride, for interacting with the driver, um, and this is for our adult population and, and young adults. Uh, lots of different things that we can do from uh, an indoor setting to be able to develop those skills. If anyone has a, an interest to find out about how telepractice, telehealth developed or has been developing, there's lots of resources here. This has been around for many years. Other fields have done lots of things. 
in Australia, teleservices have been provided through the Rome Project, where basically travelers are wearing a camera strapped on their chest. You can order that chest harness from Amazon. It gives you a sense of what it is you could be able to see of the traveler. You can see their cane. You can see what's in front of them. You can see their foot, their, their, their feet below them because you can use an attachment like a fisheye lens that increases the field of view. Uh, they always work with an assistant so that there, there is someone with the traveler. So just as an example, if a person were legally allowed at the moment to go outside and walk around the block for exercise with their family, maybe you ask the parent to be the assistant and you're having a video conference with them so that the parent has you on a Zoom call. You're able to see what the child is doing because the parent's holding the phone. If you need to intervene, you're able to communicate with both the parent and the student. Lots of different ways that this can happen, but you might enjoy perusing some of these options that are in the research on telepractice. There's also guidelines that have come out from different, different agencies and associations. ACVREP is in the process of developing guidelines and updating the code of ethics to consider how these things might occur um, and, and to be able to provide safe and effective instruction to those that we work with and those that we serve. Uh, that's something the subject matter expert committee will be reviewing in the very near future to be able to move that forward to the field. In terms of other examples of remote assistance, uh, we have services like IRA, where the first five minutes is free. This is something that also in some stores throughout the, the country, throughout the world, some stores or public services like airports have provided the service so you don't have to worry about the five minutes. As soon as you're there, you can use the IRA app and a live agent will assist you. So basically, whatever you see through the camera lens, the agent can see, just like Mission Impossible, they can help you through that. Be My Eyes is a crowdsourced app that runs on both Android and iOS, where you have a live video connection between a volunteer helper and the person who's blind or visually impaired. This is something where you as a, as a professional can sign up to be a helper and the person you're working with can sign up to be helped. You won't necessarily be matched together, but you can teach that individual how to use it, how to use the app to ask questions about what color are my shoes or what's the code date on the milk. Lots of different information that can be obtained there. Some people use it for walking down the street. Could you tell me what stores I'm passing? Lots of different ways that that can be used. One of the areas that I, when we talked about adults, this is, can also be true for early childhood. We would just use different types of sounds. So for early childhood, we want students to be aware of what do emergency vehicles sound like? Um, what does it sound like when the wind blows compared to the rain? Thinking about using sound, paying attention to sound. It's all this sensory efficiency. There is a book called, um, I'm going to probably kill the title. It's Listening to Learn, Learning to Listen, or... Uh, one or the other, I can't remember which one comes first, but those are skills that we typically need to encourage the development of. Um, field recording is something that would allow you to capture sounds. You could go out and record the sound of an intersection. If you have um, binaural uh, recording microphones, uh, you can pick those up on amazon.com and, and make some recordings on your own. Uh, you can go out to the intersection you've already worked at with an adult, record the sound there to talk about what is parallel and perpendicular sound like. There's also some sounds that you can download. So there are people who have already made 
recordings. And so you can have the person that you're working with listen to traffic sounds. You know the traffic sounds and you can then talk about them. What does it sound like when the surge begins? Can you help me understand what it sounds like when the turning cars go compared to the cars going straight? One area that will be very challenging with these sounds is to tell front to back when the car comes from behind you to in front of you. But typically you can tell the right and the left if you're using headphones rather than just the sound from the computer. So by using stereo headphones with binaural recording, you can have that ability to have a sense of space through the auditory channel. Um, again, for early childhood, you're thinking about sounds that they might hear. You could pick out sounds that they might hear traveling in their uh, daycare center or maybe in their elementary school if they're in preschool or kindergarten and there's sounds that they hear in the cafeteria or the office. You could even have the parent practice carrying a lunch tray in the house by putting a tennis ball on a flat book and they have to kind of practice walking with something that could roll or an apple. These are still skills that will generalize back to the school when it's time to be there. The whole idea of what we do and how we provide service, and I'll try to make this so that it covers both school age as well as adults and early childhood, because we want to be able to connect with those that we're working with in a way that works for them. There's gonna be different services that work for everyone. In terms of what's ethical or what's appropriate, the first thing we wanna keep in mind is learner safety. And when I say learner, I'm talking about the whole age span. We want people to be safe. We want to be able to provide them with educational learning, growing opportunities, but we want to do so in a safe manner. There is no one absolute answer. That's why an IEP is individualized. There's going to be individual scenarios where one thing might be safe, but that same activity with someone else would not be considered safe. If you're going to do things remotely, I encourage you to have someone there who's your, basically your, your um, eyes, eyes on the scene. You're going to have someone there who can intervene if you feel that there's a safety concern. Just like we have some students who we have to keep them very close, close enough that we can actually put our hand on their shoulder when they're standing at the intersection because we know that they might have a tendency to step into the street. And we have other students where we can stand back a ways because we know that they have already demonstrated good judgment that they're not gonna go until they're very sure that it's safe, or they may ask for guiding information. You'll have to gauge the person that you're working with on what it's safe to do or to request from a remote scenario. For someone with social distancing who needs to be guided, there are things that you can do. Certainly holding an elbow is much less risky than holding a hand, although people still might use their elbow for their coughing or sneezing corner. Uh, but guide technique doesn't necessarily have to be hand-to-hand -hand or hand-to-arm or hand-to-shoulder. What you could do is the cane could be folded if you have a folding cane, and it becomes like a relay stick. You hold on to one end of the relay stick, they hold on to the other end of the relay stick. If it's an open cane, that's a, a rigid cane that's non-folding, you can do the same thing. You just might have to keep it in a different angled position. So there are ways to use some other object rather than a physical contact between two people to increase that space. It would be a little dif difficult to do a six foot distance, but we can at least increase some of that space to allow for um, not having to have direct skin to skin or hand to hand contact. The legalities of what's allowed and what's permitted, it's basically, if you think of what's safe to do at an intersection, what would be 
professional best practice. That's the same type of thinking that you'll use to determine what's safe for me to do with an individual through remote services. If I'm not willing to, uh, let's say, be apart from the student to do a certain activity at an intersection, I probably am not going to be willing to be apart from that student to do that same thing through remote services. There are some activities, I'm just going to pick one, um, if we talk about stair travel. If this is a student who already is a functional traveler, who is already a comfortable traveler, and you're just introducing to them a new hand technique, but you know that they're safe traveling on the stairs, that's much different than trying to teach a young person who's never traveled on the stairs before how to travel on the stairs remotely. So we need to be able to think in terms of what's best for the student's safety, what's best for the client's safety. If you're not there to support an individual who is a senior who uses a support cane, I would not suggest that you introduce that instruction remotely. If that's something where there's a simple question that the client has about where do I put my hand when I'm coming down the railing, maybe that's something you could demonstrate on your own or at least have another individual there uh, who can be with the senior as you're trying to provide some of those safety features. We want to make sure that we're providing as much input as we can to allow life to happen for individuals. In other words, if you're the only way that that individual can learn how to get to the bathroom and they have to go down the stairs to get to the bathroom, arranging with someone else at that household or a visiting nurse to be there to be your liaison as you're teaching is ideal. Just having you with them, there's no way for you to intervene if there's a safety concern. So that's the benefit of having an assistant with you to facilitate what's happening in the actual moment with the client. There's lots of different ways to go about doing this. You have options that you can do on screen. You have options that the camera can use. It's going to depend on the skills that the learner has. You will probably be doing some developing of background skills. There's going to be some prerequisite skills. Just like to use a, an app on the, on the iPhone or an Android phone, you have to know how to navigate the screen. You may be the one teaching that. You may work in collaboration with another team member who is your AT person, uh, or you may be doing that on your own. Some people already have developed these skills, and you can move forward in a different fashion. If you find that you're frustrated uh, because things aren't moving along the way you had hoped, it's likely because there might be a, a prerequisite skill that hasn't been met yet that you still have to develop. In some ways, just by having the interaction, you're helping them to develop those social interaction skills, really no different than if they walked into a Walmart and they met with a greeter and they asked where the bathroom was, they would have to be able to have an effective communication exchange with the greeter to not only understand what the greeter was saying, but then to be able to carry it out. And so you'll have to come to a place where you can relay information over the phone to them and then have them carry it out. For people who don't even have the phone option, we're back to uh, just snail mail, U.S. mail. You can put things into the mail that we used to have. Uh, when I first learned uh, the basic Braille, I did it through Hadley School for the Blind in a correspondence course where they would send homework back and forth. I would do the Braille with a slate and stylus, send it into the teacher, and she would score it and send it back. You may make a map, a tactile map, send it in the mail. The client that you're working with receives it and now you ask them to uh, use it in some way. Um, it's a little bit 
more challenging because you have to think creatively about how they can get the information. It may be that you actually are recording things on an audio tape like we used to do to make songs for a friend. You're recording information on the audio tape. They may not have a digital player, but they may still have an audio tape player around. So lots of different ways that we can take a step back or two from our traditional technology into just being creative with physical materials to use to relay information. In terms of low tech, just as creating and using accessible maps, um, creating those tactile maps uh, can be done with anything. We can use all sorts of different pieces of material around. Uh, we also have um, just doing basic routines. So when we think about our functional learners, they learn very well through having routines. Helping a family to create a routine, it could be that the routine is going out each day to pick up the mail. And as part of that routine, maybe they have some tactile symbols that they're using, and maybe they're communicating about going to get the mail. Maybe when they get in, they, they can actually put the symbol back into the finish basket, use the hand sign for finish. Lots of different ways that we can do things like that to continue routines and infusing information into the routines. If a student is developing their basic one-to-one -one correspondence, we can count the number of pieces of mail that we have. We can talk about big and small. We can talk about heavy and light. We can talk about open and close with a mailbox. So there's lots of different ways to be using basic functional skills in the home to, to continue using routines for our students who are at a very early level. If it's just things like using the sun for orientation or uh, a compass, uh, there aren't many of the braille compasses around anymore, but those are things we can still use, the location of the sun, some other clues to help us with our orientation. I don't know if parents are going to have switches or other things at home, but there are, are different ways of connecting the switches to the toys that just will take a little bit of working together to find out which toys are going to be accessible using which features. You can actually make your own switches, but I'm, I'm going back into decades ago when we used to make a switch rather than ordering a, a big red. I encourage people to use the activelearningspace.org because the active learning space will teach you how to build some of those materials. And so you can do that safely so that the child has things to interact with, things to, to develop concepts with, but we don't have to worry about a child getting caught in elastic because there's ways to build these that we might put plastic tubing over the elastic uh, so that it doesn't get around the child's neck so that the parent can walk away while the child is using the scratch board or other types of things. So lots of different resources. It's just terrific to know that, that we have places to go to get information and to learn from each other. Do you know an infant or toddler in Texas who may have a vision problem? They may qualify for free services. Support from a teacher of students with visual impairment may increase a child's success in school and life. Call 817-740-7530 to find out more. That's 817-740-7530. Anyone who knows Chris knows that he loves nothing more than to share what he's learned and is always excited to pass along insights from colleagues and families. Like us, he understands that knowledge is only at its best when the most people have it. The longer video version of this presentation showed off Chris's voluminous live binder, which contains much more information than he could get to even in his full hour. So make sure to look in the description for this episode to find links to that and a specific link to get you to his distance learning folder. 
He has collected an indispensable amount of information to share with everyone. Chris embodies the spirit so many of those in education demonstrated this year. When life threw mountainous obstacles in the way, we said how instead of we can't. And our students and families are so much better for that effort. You can also find a link to our coffee hour folders that contain transcripts, materials, and some recordings of the sessions we held this spring. I do have a small correction that I'm thrilled to make. Remember earlier when I said Chris was formally of TSVVI Outreach? Well, that's only temporarily true. It turns out he is the once and future O&M specialist for Texas Outreach, since he will return to our department at the start of the school year. We couldn't be happier to have his expertise, spirit, and yes, even some of those patented jokes back on our campus. We are thrilled to welcome him back home. From the TSVVI Outreach Department and A Sense of Texas, I'm Emily Coleman. See you next time. This has been a presentation of the Texas School for the Blind and Visually Impaired Outreach Department. If you have any questions or suggestions for topics to cover in future episodes, please contact us at podcast at tsbvi.edu.